If you would, open your Bibles to 2 Timothy 3. I want to continue uh, the message I began last week entitled, All Scripture. All Scripture. We're going to read 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse uh, 14. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, convince, exhort, rebuke, with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word. I pray that through the ministry of your spirit today, you would make your word profitable for us, that we would benefit from hearing it today, that you, uh, that your spirit would enlighten us, convince us, educate us, train us, so that we might be perfect, complete, mature, and ready for every good work. We ask this, Lord, for your glory, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, last week we looked at the fact that there's two propositions in this text regarding the word in verse 16. It says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for dot, 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 dot. So there's two assertions. One, it's inspired. And number two, it's profitable. We looked at inspiration last week and we talked about what inspiration meant and the fact that the assertion here by Paul is that all scripture is inspired. All means what? All. all. Of course, in, in, in Paul's day, it was primarily the Old Testament, although there, uh, uh, an early gospel may have been floating around, some other epistles at his time. But the point is, not some scripture is inspired, but all of it. And it's all God-breathed. And the result of the, the fact that it's God-breathed is the fact that it is profitable. In other words, its author determines its quality or its benefit, if you will. God inspired it, spoke it, breathed it, and the result is that we benefit from it. So um, let's look at let's look here at um, the profit, if you will, or the benefit, some of the benefits of the scripture. Now, before I go dig into this. This is not an exhaustive list. As a matter of fact, there, there is no exhaustive list. You read different texts, it'll highlight different aspects of, of the scripture. These are just some of the things that Paul says 
the Word does for us. He mentions four things. One, doctrine. Number two, I'm reading the New King James, by the way. You might read different. One is doctrine. Second is reproof. Third is correction. And four is instruction. The result of this being then completeness. Completeness. So let's look at these, uh, these words a little bit. First, Paul says, the scripture is profitable for doctrine. Didaskalia. This is a word which simply means teaching. Um, but we could say it just means truth. Now, when some people hear the word doctrine, they think of a big, fat, heavy book, right? That's sitting in my office <laughs> that nobody wants to read but me. That's doctrine. Okay. Pastors read that kind of stuff. We don't read that. That's doctrine. Okay. The fact is, every sermon you hear, even if the sermon is this simple, Jesus is on his throne. Amen. We're done today. You have heard doctrine. Who's Jesus? Why is he on the throne? What did he do to get there? It's, it's full of doctrine. So, so we, need to, we need to get rid of the, this idea that doctrine is this, this dry, boring, tedious thing. What, what Paul is, is saying here is that, is that the Scripture gives us teaching. Teach, it teaches. It instructs the mind. Okay? It gives us truths, if you will, of all kinds. Speculative truth and practical truth. Theoretical truth, if you will, uh, and, and basic moral truth. It tells us about God, about man, about the world, about nature, about angels, about creation, about the beginning, about the present, about the past, about heaven, about hell, and much, much, much more. The Bible is full of truths. Let me, let me read a quote by uh, uh, Ryle, one of my faves, one of my hero, heroes. Great book, by the way, called Practical Religion. I'm going to read a little bit. The quote's going to be a little long, but it's, just, it's really good. I could have said it, but he said it better, so I'll give, him, I'll, give, I'll give him the floor for a minute, all right? He says, The time would fail me if we were to enter fully into all the great things which are to be found in the Bible, and only in the Bible. It is not by any uh, sketch or outline that the treasures of the Bible can be displayed. It would be easy to fill this volume with the list of the peculiar truths it reveals, and yet the half of its riches would be left untold. How glorious and soul-satisfying is the description it gives us of God's plan of salvation, and the way by which our sins can be forgiven. The coming into the world of the Lord Jesus, the God-man, to save sinners. The atonement he has made by suffering in our stead, the just for the unjust. The complete payment he has made for our sins by his own blood. The justification of every sinner who simply believes on Jesus. The readiness of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost to receive, pardon, and save to the uttermost. Amen. How unspeakably grand and cheering are all these truths. But we should know nothing of them without the Bible. He goes on, how comforting is the account it gives us of the great mediator of the New Testament, the man Christ Jesus. Four times over, meaning the four Gospels, 
His picture is graciously drawn before our eyes. Four separate witnesses tell us of his miracles and his ministry, his sayings and his doings, his life and his death, his power and his love, his kindness and his patience, his ways, his words, his works, his thoughts, and his heart. Moreover, how encouraging are the examples the Bible gives us of good people. It tells us of many who are of like passions with ourselves, men and women who would cares, crosses, families, temptations, etc., like ourselves, yet by faith and patience inherited their promises and got safe home, meaning to heaven. And then he talks about how it gives us examples of bad people, which I won't mention at the moment. How precious are the promises of the Bible for those who love God. It is hardly... It is hardly any possible emergency or condition for which it is not some word in season. And it tells men that God loves to put to be put in remembrance of these promises. And that he has said he will do a thing, his promise shall certainly be performed. How blessed are the hopes the Bible holds out to the believer in Jesus. Peace in the hour of death. Rest and happiness on the other side of the grave. A glorious body in the morning of the resurrection. A full and triumphant acquittal in the day of judgment. An everlasting reward in the kingdom of Christ. A joyful meeting with the Lord's people in the day of gathering. They're all written in the book. In the book which is all true. All these things and more, men could find nowhere except in the Bible. We have probably not the least idea how little we should know about these things if we had not the Bible. We hardly know the value of the air we breathe and the sun which shines on us because we have never known what it is to be without them. We do not value the truths on which I have just been now dwelling because we do not realize the darkness of men to whom these truths have not been revealed. Surely no tongue can fully tell the value of the treasures this one volume contains. Amen? That's doctrine. Everything the Bible asserts is essentially doctrine in the sense of this teaching because it is giving us truths. It gives us promises. It gives us warnings. It gives us examples. It gives us grounds for hope. You know, he made a comment, which I'll, I'll, I'll differ with a little bit, when he says, how little do, how, basically he said, <clears throat> we don't know what it would be like to be without the Bible. And there's a sense in which that's true. We don't appreciate how much the Bible has permeated what's called Western civilization and our culture. Even in when we see the decay around us and all the sin in our society, still there, there is so much of a Christian influence because of things that are stated in the Word of God that, that have permeated our culture. Even ideas like love and tolerance. When you go back and, and, and look at, at pagan culture, th these are cultures outside of the pale of the word of God, cultures outside of Israel before the time of Jesus, they didn't talk about love and tolerance. They didn't talk about human rights. They didn't talk about equality. 
They didn't talk about all of these things that we assume. Well, where did these things come from? They came from the Word of God. The problem in the world, and this is something Chesterton and Lewis talked about repeatedly, is that they'll take one of the virtues in the Bible and then separate it from the rest of the Bible. And by doing so, they distort it. So, so much of what we take for granted in our, in our worldview, we Westerners, uh, has, been, has been grounded in the Word of God, and much of what we assume, we could not know in any other way. No matter how much science explores the universe, they will never really be able to determine the origins. Because they weren't there. They weren't there. As my old pastor used to say, the only, the only thing that's evolving is the theory of evolution. You get a new theory about once a week now. New discovery. This changes everything about, I mean, I've read, probably read two or three this week. New discovery changes everything about evolution. And so, and so on and on and on it goes. A lot of it's simply just guesswork. Because not being rooted in this book, men are left to darkness. They don't know the origin. They don't know their destiny. And thus, they really don't have hope, and they don't have purpose. So for all you anti-doctrine people, understand doctrine is good. Teaching is good. Learning is good. Reading is good. Studying is good. Thinking, although it's hard, <laughs> is good. Now, sometimes I don't like to think. You know what the word amusement means? The word amuse actually means think, and ah is the privative, which means the negative of thinking. So when you're being amused, you're not thinking. <laughs> right? That's why TV is amusing, because you don't think. You just look at it. <laughs> and you kind of does ah. I, this all, it all has its, you know, ve vegetating has its place. <laughs> you need to relax, right? God even gave us one day out of seven to relax, Amen. right? So that's all good. Uh, but, you know, the, the mind is, is like a muscle. Yes. And the, the more you use it, the stronger and better it gets. And the less you use it, the flabbier it gets, the weaker it gets. And so we need to engage our minds <clears throat> in the Word. We need to study and, and think about even some of the hard things in the Word. Um, because the Scripture itself tells us that we are to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. Matter of fact, Paul tells us in Romans 12, which is the after 11 chapters of here's what the gospel is, guys. Now I'm going to tell you how to apply it. And the first thing he says is to renew your mind. In other words, transform the way you see everything, think about everything, through the Word of God. Through the doctrine, through the teaching, through the instruction. Jesus said that if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. 
The truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. Not darkness, not error, not mistakes, not confusion, not TV, not the internet, not Facebook, not Twitter. The truth will set you free. And then he says to the Father, Thy word is truth. Thy word is truth. This word is truth. Amen? And so Jesus is saying, this word will set you free. This word will set you free. This doctrine, this teaching, is transformative. But the place you begin is with understanding the truths of the Bible. And there's no shortcut to that, but to read, to meditate, to pray, and to study. This doctrine is important because it really ultimately defines our practice or how we live. Does it not? If you want to know what somebody believes, don't ask them. Watch them. Watch them. You'll, you'll find a whole lot out about people by just observing what their priorities are, where they spend their money, where they spend their time, what kind of friends they pick, what kind of clothes they wear. The decisions we make really show what we really believe in spite of our creedal statements. So doctrine is not simply some hypothetical, theoretical, abstract thing. It is profoundly practical. And the Bible, the truths in the Bible address so many practical things. I mean, when you read the Bible, there isn't like a book called The Trinity. We get a long discussion about this thing that we can't really grasp. No, it's not like that. The Bible is profoundly practical. And it addresses us in our situation, how, how we live and how we should live. But most importantly on this, this topic of doctrine is that not only does it determine our, our, our practice, it determines our worship. Our worship. John 4, uh, put, put a bookmark where you are and then we'll go to John 4 for a moment. John 4, Jesus is talking to this Samaritan woman. She was uh, a believer, but being a Samaritan, she was, she was believing some false things because the Samaritans were, were basically, a, from the Jews' perspective, a heretical group that had broken off from uh, Judaism. Jesus says to her in verse 22, he says, you worship what you do not know. He didn't say you don't worship. He didn't say you need to worship. He's, she did worship. The problem was, he says, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. That he's just saying, you and the, the Samaritan, you're worshiping erroneously 
we, the Jews, are, we have the full truth, if you will, and thus we know who and what we are worshiping. But the hour is coming, verse 23, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and what? Spirit and what? Spirit and what? Spirit and truth, not spirit and emotions. Now, I believe in emotional worship. I believe that if your emotions, what the Puritans like to call your frame, isn't moved, then you're not worshiping as you should. We are creatures made of a mind, emotion, and will, and all three should be engaged in worship. But if the mind's wrong, then we're engaging in false worship. It doesn't matter what's going on in the emotional realm. If our mind's wrong, if the object of our worship is wrong, then that's false worship. We worship in spirit, but we worship in truth. And the Father is seeking such to worship him. Verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit. And what? Truth. One more, another quote, this one from Tozer. I've read it many times. Uh, I would encourage you to, to buy and read the book, The Knowledge of the Holy. If for no other reason, just the first chapter. It's worth the price. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me say it again. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous, portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. Do you hear that? In his deep heart, what he conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. That our idea of God correspond as nearly as possible to the true being of God is of immense importance to us compared with our actual thoughts about him, our credo statements are of little consequence. Let me say it again. Compared with our actual thoughts about him, our credo statements are of little consequence. Our real idea of God may lie buried under the rubbish of conventional religious notions and may require an intelligent and vigorous search before it's finally unearthed and exposed for what it is. Only after an ordeal of painful self-probing 
are we likely to discover what we actually believe about God? We know the true God through his word. This word tells us that although God revealed himself in nature, that revelation was limited. And in, through the scripture, because God is his great mercy, wanted so, so to reveal himself and share himself with his creatures, God gave us a perfect revelation of his perfect being. And we find it in his word. Amen? Now, is it exhaustive? No. Because there's no book big enough. But it is sufficient. And it is clear. And what we think, truly think of God, thus must conform to what God has revealed about himself. About himself. So this doctrine thing is an important thing. That's why Paul puts it first. Secondly, back in our original passage here, secondly, he says the scripture is profitable for reproof. This word reproof can mean uh, rebuke, reproof, convict, convince, or even expose. It could be translated any of these ways, depending on the context. Now, this rebuke thing is interesting because... um, when you think about rebuke, a rebuke obviously is pointing out someone's error, right? And you're, you're rebuking or reproving them. But a rebuke can be wrong in, in, in two possible ways. One, you can rebuke for somebody for something they didn't do wrong. It says in Matthew that Peter rebuked Jesus. Uh, I think he was wrong. I think Peter got that one wrong. Why? Because Jesus wasn't guilty. So he rebuked him, but he was wrong. The rebuke didn't apply. But a rebuke can also be wrong in the sense, or not wrong, but, well, yeah, I'll just say that. In the sense that you, it's possible for someone to be rebuked where it applies, but the rebuke has no impact. So in the first case, it's inapplicable. In the second case, it's ineffectual. Okay? Now, I'm getting off on what you're probably thinking is a tangent, because this word here is is an important word, because this word here means not just a rebuke like Peter, rebuke the Lord. That's actually a different Greek word. The word here means a reproof which is effectual. It means a reproof that convinces the conscience. How? By exposing the error. So we're told that the word is profitable for reproof or rebuke. It means it's profitable for bringing light and exposing darkness. That's really what it's saying. And the result of God, the word bringing light, what's the result? The result is conviction, right? Conviction. A convincing that either an attitude or a doctrine or a practice is wrong. And this is how this particular Greek word is used in the New Testament. Let me give a few examples. We'll come back to 
this passage in a moment. Go to John 3. I'm just going to assume you're with me. Okay. John 3. John 3 is where we get John 3.16, that famous passage everybody, every Christian knows, and even a lot of non-Christians know it. Um, but Jesus says in verse 18, uh, John 3, he that believes in him is not condemned, meaning him, meaning the son, meaning himself. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And this is the condemnation. That light, the light, has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? Lest their deeds should be exposed. Or King James says, reproved. Your version may say something different. It's the same Greek word here. The light exposes the darkness. That's what light does. (laughs) It's supposed to do that, right? John 16, since we're in John, Jesus is promising the Holy Spirit to the to the, the uh, apostles and thus to the church. And he says, here's what he's going to do in John 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And, he, and when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The word convict here is the same word. Same word. He will, exp- he will give light and thus expose darkness. We're, we're told in, in uh, Psalm 119, the psalmist says what? He says to God, he says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. So the word of God reproves in the sense that, that the word of God brings conviction. Now, when you hear the word conviction, you're like, yuck, I don't want that. But, but the word conviction it really is, is linked to the word convince. I mean, don't you want to be convinced of what's true? That's really what the word is doing. It's convincing us of what is true, what is right, what is good, what is bad. It, convince, it convicts us if we're in error, but that conviction is so that we will be convinced. Right? Not just convinced of the wrong, convinced of what's right. I'm convinced that I cannot walk on water. And that's a good thing. Or I would drown. The scripture tells us regarding itself that it is a living weapon. Hear me now. Living weapon. Look at, look at Hebrews 4. I love this passage. Look at Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4. I can't even find Hebrews. I'm so excited. I can't even find it. Okay. It is in the New Testament, right? No, I'm just kidding. Hebrews 4. Because I'm not using my smartphone. I'm not smart. Verse 12. For the Word of God, the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Ooh. What does it do? 
piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So the Word of God probes us. The Word of God deals with our mind and our emotions and our will, and, it, and the Word of God reveals, exposes what's really going on, what we really believe, what we're really struggling with, what, what sins really need to be repented of, etc., etc., etc. And here the, the image is of a sword, and a sword is actually a good thing, Right? A sword is used to defend off enemies, to conquer enemies. And in Ephesians, the word of God is called also a sword. That's good. A sword or a knife or a lance is used in surgery. That's a good thing, right? Right? So God uses his word, his sword, his lance, to do surgery on our soul. And the anesthesia is the Holy Ghost. <laughs> because sometimes the word's painful. Come out of a dark room into bright sunlight, boom, the light hurts. The light hurts. So God gives us his Holy Spirit. So, so the, the, the word does its work of conviction, of convincing, and sometimes it's painful. It's hard to admit you were wrong. It's hard to admit that, that, that something you're doing is a sin. Sometimes it's hard to, to let go of these things. But, but the word of God works and exposes and discerns and carves and does these other things in our heart. And that's a good work. It's a good work. In, in Jeremiah, Jeremiah refers to God's word as a fire and a hammer. Fire's a good thing, isn't it? I, I saw my wife the other day, I can't wait till Christmas. I'm already, I'm ready for Christmas. I want, a fi I want my fireplace going. I love having a fire. I love fire. But I don't like putting my hand in the fire. Okay? That hurts. But even fire is used. I mean, not only is it used in a good way to, to cook, it's used in healing. When, when something is bleeding, they cauterize it. They use fire. Right? His word's a hammer. It, it, it nails down truth. It nails us down to the truth, if you will. It gives us a, it nails us down, it gives us solidity, if you will, stability. Jesus talks about building your house on his word, and he talks about the storm coming in, and one of them was washed away and one isn't. Well, it's because you need to be nailed down to the foundation. So the word does that. So God uses his word to reprove to convince us of what is wrong as well as what is right. And then thirdly, Paul says that the, the third prophet of the word is, is correction. Correction. Now, I really learned something when I was studying this passage because I had been, actually been misreading this passage for over 40 years because I misunderstood the word correction. Not, not just like in the original, I mean even the English word. When I think of being corrected, I think of being reproved. That's not what it means. I was conflating these two words. Like, well, that's redundant. If it reproves us, then why does it correct us? Because if you correct somebody, you're reproving them. But actually, the reproof, are you listening? I know I'm a little technical today. Reproof is, if you will, the negative. Correction is the positive. So imagine you get, you get a new piece of furniture from Ikea and you've got to put it together. Yeah. 
Yeah, I know. Help, Lord. All right. And so, so, so the husband's in there working on it, and the wife walks through and says, uh, that's not the right way to do it, and then walks away. Well, that was a reproof. Was that a correction? No. Here's a correction. Uh, honey, I don't think that's the right way to do it, but uh, here's the right way. I'm showing you the correct way. That's what correction is. Correction isn't pointing out the error. The emphasis isn't on that. The emphasis is on showing the right way to do something, the right way to live. Could you imagine a parent, you've got a little child, they're trying to learn how to tie their, tie their shoes, say, that's not the right way. <laughs> that's not helpful, Mom. <laughs> how do you do it? How do you do it? If God only pointed out our error, that wouldn't be all that helpful, would it? No. So he, he reproves, he exposes, he gives light and shows the error, but then he shows the correct path. Okay. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. Right? Or did I get it backwards? Whatever. <laughs> this is the only place in Scripture where this Greek word is used. And it's the positive complement to what we call as negative conviction, although conviction isn't negative. That's even positive. Because it's a blessing to be told by God that we're doing something wrong, that we're thinking wrong. That is a blessing. So uh, it does no good to tell someone that they're doing something wrong if we don't show them how to do it right. So correction of the word means that the scriptures show us the correct way to think, to act, to live, to love. And it's because it is a living word, as, as we read in Hebrews. And it shows us the correct path. Fourthly, uh, in my version, it says, in, in here in Timothy, it says, after correction for instruction and in righteousness, your version may say training. This, is, this training is the better word, uh, I believe. It's, it's the Greek word paideia, paideia, which could just simply be translated education, um, but it really means training or discipline, training or discipline. Thus, the phrase here could be translated uh, that the word is profitable for training in righteousness or discipline in right living. Discipline in right living. So as we hear the word, read the word, study the word, uh, it disciplines our minds to think rightly. It disciplines our wills to choose rightly. It disciplines our emotions to feel rightly. Each of these, the mind, will, and emotion, must be trained because the goal is that we would be complete. The, the word artios, whole and entire, lacking nothing. Whole and entire, lacking nothing. Thus it means to be fully formed, or, or we would say well-rounded, mature in heart and head, mind and soul, intellect, volition, and emotion. Now, we are all by nature deformed. We are all spiritually, mentally, emotionally deformed. Okay? So, 
God is, through his word, reforming us. Okay? He's training us and reforming us by showing the reproof, the bad, by showing us the correct way to think and to feel and to act. Okay? But it's a process, right? And so some of us are really far along in one area, but we're stunted in another area. So you get some people that are profoundly intellectual in their faith. And they've read those big fat books that I have. But they're stunted emotionally. They could even be stunted spiritually. Because intellect and, and intellectual maturity and spiritual maturity are not identical. I read two books a while back. I get books sent to me all the time by publishers. And, and I, I, these books were sent to me. And they were both by long tenured seminary professors, and both books had a testimony from the, the, the professor about an encounter with Jesus. And what was striking is that the encounter they were describing happened to me when I got saved. It happened to me, happens to me frequently. I just call it fellowship with Jesus. Really. To me, it, 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 and this isn't making like my experience special, it's normal Christian living. Yes. And they both recounted how their, their lives changed. And this was after they had been, been teaching theology in a seminary for 20 to 30 years. They had profound intellectual knowledge, but they had little to no experiential knowledge. So imagine a picture of somebody with a huge head and a shrunken heart. Okay. Well, artios means that the head and heart are the same size. Okay. Other people are are like, are are the opposite. They're like, well, I'm a doer. I'm a doer. Well, and and they, 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 and they are, I mean, they just do, 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 do. And not do, do. I mean, they do. Your, your, your mind's in the, in, in the potty. Okay, so they are, they, they, they act, they do, but you can't get them to sit down and read their Bible. Literally. I knew a guy, great guy. He was a servant, a great, I mean, as a servant, he's very gifted servant. The guy, but he wouldn't read his Bible. Well, that's a problem. That's like a picture of a guy that's got huge hands and a shrunken head. Right? Artios means that all the parts are formed. The mind, the emotions, the will. We all know more than we believe. We know more than we believe. Think about that a while. And we all know more than we obey. Because we're not well-formed yet. See, being well-formed means what we know and what we embrace with our, our will and what we feel with the emotions. These would coincide because we're artios, complete. We're not deformed in any way. So we all have strengths, we all have weaknesses. The goal is that we're nothing but strengths. You see? That's the, what this word really means. Uh, and, and then Paul reiterates it by saying, 
uh, thoroughly equipped is my version. That's the same word with, with the word put on the front of it to, to so I want you to be arduous, really arduous, really complete, really lacking nothing, really lacking nothing, so you can do every good work. I know Christians, man, if you want, if you want someone to pray, you call them, because they are prayer warriors, and I thank God for them. But if you want them to share the gospel with somebody, good luck. No, I'm serious. They won't do it. You got other people who, have, who are so generous. If you need, man, they'll give you time. They'll give you money. They'll give you, they'll give you these, literally the shirt off their back. They are so generous. But, but, but try to get them to suspend an hour in prayer. Nope. They ain't going to go to the prayer meeting. That's because they are not arduous. What we tend to do is we say, oh, that, that person's gift in that area. Just let them do that gift, but then be deformed in other areas. That's not the goal. The goal is that we excel, that we are mature, that we are fully formed in every area. You hearing me? That's why Paul says, thoroughly equipped for what? Every good work. Evangelism, giving, prayer, go service, go down the list. Every good work. And we, I do it too, excuse ourselves by saying, well, my gift is this. Or I'm good at this, and I'm not good at that, so that's just the way it is. Every good work. We should all be good at evangelism. We should all be good at prayer. All be good at studying the word. All be good at service. All be good. Go down the list. You're like, man, whew, that'll take a long time. <laughs> That's right. And the work is never done. We are being conformed and transformed into the image of of Jesus Christ, God's dear son. That was the purpose of our election, Paul says in Romans 8, that we would be conformed to the image of his son. Jesus was fully formed, complete, perfect. He knew when to be tender. He knew when to be hard. He knew when to preach. He knew when to pray. He knew when to heal. He knew when to serve. He was perfect. Artios. That is our model, that is our goal, and that is what the Word is doing in us. Don't you want to read your Bible now? Really? It is transformative. Transformative. And it makes us complete, equipped for every good work. I'd love to say more, but I'm out of time. So let's stand while the worship team come up and close with the worship song. Father, we thank you for your word. Amen, church? We thank you that your word is true. We thank you that as your son Jesus prayed, we are sanctified through your word. Lord, I pray that we would be a people of the book, that we read it, that we study it, that we meditate in it, that we talk about it, that we share it. People of the book. And we pray, Lord, that your word would truly um, instruct us, 
that your word would reprove us, that your word would correct us, that your word would train and discipline us, that we might be complete for every good work. That is our prayer. And all God's people said, Amen.